You may be seated, church. What a thing to cry out together, amen. No power of hell, no scheme of man pluck you from the hand of Christ. What a God we worship, what a gospel. Mm. I'm stoked to be here, guys. I'm hyped on this. I was out of the pulpit for two weeks. Just thank you for that. Thank you for letting my family go hang out at the lake and be lazy and do all that stuff. It was wonderful. It was great. But I just missed you guys, okay? I did. I, I, I loved it. I was glad I got to go. But man, two weeks is too long. So I'm glad to be back. Uh, we are continuing our series in the Psalms today. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles and turn them over to Psalm 121, we're going to be in Psalm 121 today. If you don't have a Bible with you today, by the way, uh, that's fine. We really believe in the importance of the necessity to access to God's words. There's actually on the end of each row, there's a little tray under the chair. There's Bibles in there. You're welcome to grab one. In fact, if you're here today and you don't own a physical copy of God's word, I would encourage you to snag that one and take it home. Or even better, uh, talk to one of the pastors and we will get you one with slightly larger font because whew, that one's hard to read. Uh, same joke I make every week. And I just, it's every time guys, like if you, it's, that one's not going away. That one's just in the repertoire. We're going to stay there. It's going to be great. Uh, anyway, so we're in Psalm 121. Before we read that text, there is one thing I need to make you guys aware of. Uh, Craig already mentioned this, but I want to just, I want to say it again. I want to emphasize it. I want to celebrate this. One of the first things Emmanuel Fellowship Church did heading into this new year was you guys as a church body brought forth deacon nominations to kind of fill out our deacon board. It's one of the coolest, most worshipful experiences I got to see of our whole church coming together, the church body, the elders, the deacons, to identify, pray over, uh, train, and raise up some new deacons. And now, however many months later, uh, we have three new deacons ready to be installed into our deaconate, which is such a cool thing. So Lucas Montaigne, Brittany Jordan, Sally Amalang, they're all joining our deacon board. Uh, so Sunday the 21st, is that right? Is that what your bulletin says? Yeah? Okay, good. Uh, Sunday the 21st, we're going to officially install these new deacons. We'll pray over them, bring them forward. Well, after church that Sunday, we'll have some snacks downstairs, some space for you guys to meet them, get to know them, grill them, ask Lucas lots of detailed and difficult theological questions. If you could just Google difficult theological questions and bring a list prepared to ask Lucas, that would be, uh, that would be helpful. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's going to be a great celebration. It's just such a cool thing to see God's faithfulness in loving and serving our church and kind of moving us that direction. So I um, hope you guys can join me in celebrating that. Hopefully you can be here that Sunday and be in that with us. Today, however, today we're in Psalm 121. I'm, I'm stoked for this text. I'm stoked for this text for a couple of reasons. I think you'll see it as we get into it. This is one of those texts that is just so simple and so beautiful that just your immediate surface reading of it, you just get this kind of like, yep, I get, I get it. I get why that one's so good. But it's also really difficult. It brings with it, it kind of taps into some of the deepest and hardest questions about Christian faith. Uh, and so I think we're going to get to be in that juxtaposition today of celebrating the simple gospel beauty of the text, but also, if I'm honest, weighing through a couple really deep and difficult things. So Psalm 121, hopefully by this point you've been able to turn there and you can read with me. Starting in the first verse, we read this. 
I lift my eye toward the mountain. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He'll protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and your going, both now and forever. In this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Man, what a beautiful text, right? Like if, you're, if you've been, we've said this pretty much each week we've been in Psalms, but the Psalms as a book, these, this collection of poems and songs about the, the personal and individual experience of the life of faith, what does it feel like to be someone who chases after God and seeks to know him and love him? Like Psalms very often become these deeply personal and intimate parts of our expression of faith because in various points in our faith journey and various, like we grab a hold of some of these things and they influence our prayers and influence the way we engage God. And you read a psalm like this and you go, I get it. I can think of times in my life when like that's the prayer I needed, right? And some of you guys can think back to specific times in your life when this psalm was the prayer you prayed, right? For some of us, this is a text that gets deeply connected to our heart because it's so simple and direct and clear in its beauty. God sees you. He cares about you. He protects you. He guards you. He watches over you. What a comforting thing, right? Such a beautiful and simple truth. And by the way, I think as we go through our text today, we're not going to get past that. That is the simple truth of this text. God loves you. He sees you. He cares for you. He protects you. Call to him in your need. That's where it's at. That's the truth of this text, where we're going to land today. But I think this text raises up for many of us, and if not you, many people in the world who consider and engage and talk about Christianity, a really important and really old question. And if you're like me, when we went through this text for the first time, there was something, like you were kind of became a divided person, and there was something in your soul that was like, amen, that's so beautiful, man. I need to remember that. I need to write this one down. I need to remember this one so I can like bring that up in my prayers later. And then there was another part of you going, that's not true, right? How, how is this text actually true? It says, it says some really bold and plain and intense things. Let me reread this to you guys in case you missed this. In verse 7, the Lord will protect you from all harm. That's a beautiful sentence. How is that actually true? How does that, how does that engage? How does that walk into real life? Because I'm, I'm pretty confident that every single one of us in this room have experienced harm. Even those of us who love Jesus and are actively seeking him and following him, right? Harm is a part of life in this broken and sinful world. I think this taps into one of the most fundamental, one of the oldest questions about the life of faith and arguments against the validity of Christianity. This this taps into what's often called by philosophers the problem of theodicy. How does the biblical God exist 
in a world where there is evil and suffering and harm? How is that possible? If you go back and read the atheist philosophers of the last two or three hundred years, as long as they've kind of been writing, this is one of the oldest arguments against the Christian faith. That if the God exists as the Bible describes him as all-powerful and all-knowing and completely imperfect expression of love, then how does evil exist? Because if he's all-knowing, he knows evil exists. If he's all-powerful, he has the ability to do something about it. And if he's all-loving, then he would have the moral obligation to do something about it. But it exists. So he must not be there. An old argument against Christianity. And by the way, this isn't just the kind of argument that comes up in like grouchy circles of the internet and like forums where people debate and argue just to be mean. This is a question that comes up from people in good faith, genuinely exploring and seeking, considering the the, the claims of the gospel and the claims of scripture. Because we live in a painful world. We live in a world where horrific injustices happen. And many of us have experienced terrible things, either through consequences of our own bad decisions or through consequences of other people's bad decisions or just the reality of living in this world. Pain, suffering, disease, betrayal. Experience those things. So how can this text be true? Spoiler alert, I think it's true. Uh, Yeah, sorry. But I think to get there, I think we need to do some work to dig into some of the context around this. And so I want to invite you to take those two two pieces we start with, the simple, beautiful, plain teaching of this text, the question that popped into many of our minds as we read it, or the question that many people would bring against a text like this. And I want you to kind of hold those in your back pocket as we do a little bit of work to kind of flesh out the history, the context surrounding this text and what's being said. Does that sound good? I have a fear here, and my fear is that by explaining this text, it will muddy the waters of the simple beauty of it. I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience. My wife and I have this, this pattern that I think all people in healthy marriages do, where we like to sit next to each other on our individual phones doing things and not talking to each other. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Just like a super healthy practice for a lasting marriage. And so we'll sit there, and I'll be, I don't know, four or five layers into whatever I'm reading or scrolling through or looking at. And at this point, like, I'm deep into the intersections of my own interests, right? And then I laugh. <laughs> and she goes, "What's funny. And now I'm sitting here going, how do I explain to my wife why this picture of a scene from The Simpsons with dialogue from Star Trek overlaid on it is funny? There's so many layers here. If I just show it to her, she'll go, that's dumb. It is dumb. (laughs) If I take the time to explain to her why I think it's funny, by the time I get to the explanation, she won't care anymore, right? This is the problem. This is the problem. And this is the problem I think we can engage in a text like this, is we get so into the weeds of explaining different pieces, working through context, talking about why the speaker might phrase something this way or the language nuances this way, that we just miss out on the simplistic beauty of this text. And beloved, I don't want you to lose that. We're going to take a few minutes and dig into some stuff, and I think it will be helpful and clarify, and clarify some stuff. But please, like, don't let your heart let go of the plain reading of this text. Beloved, Jesus loves you. He sees you. 
is with you. He cares for you. He protects you. You can trust that. You can lean into that. You can come back to that in the world within which we live. So, let's work through this. A couple things we need to engage. The first one is the structure of this. Remember, we're reading poetry, right? Like, this isn't just a letter someone wrote to someone. This is a poem that was specifically constructed. And so let's talk about the structure of this poem. One of the things that we can miss in the English translation of Psalm 121 is that it actually kind of moves in three specific movements. And they're not equal in size, but there are three specific themes or a progression that we see in Psalm 121. It opens with this this very relatable question. I need some help. Where can I get help? I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? It opens with this just, I need some help. And then he moves through three movements of where that help comes from, starting at a cosmic scale and working his way down to vivid specificity. Becomes very specific. He starts by saying, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. And so he starts by by painting God as the helper, but painting God as a cosmic helper. He's the creator of all things. Obviously, he has authority and ability to engage need. So that starts with the grandest scale possible, right? Where do I get help from? God could do that. He has the authority and the ability and kind of implied in that the responsibility to do so. He's the creator of all things. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And then in your next two sections of verse three and four, the text zooms in and becomes more specific. And he says, yes, God protects Israel. He he keeps watch over Israel. He, He looks to Israel. He doesn't take a nap. He doesn't sleep. His eyes are always open. And then in verses five through eight, as the text kind of comes to a landing place, he gets really specific. He says, the Lord watches over me. The Lord watches over me in intimate ways. He's like a shelter for me. He's like, he, he cares so much about me that he keeps me from getting sunburned. He watches me as I go in and I go out. He cares for me and he does it now and he'll do it forever. And that progression to this is important. Starting out in the cosmic level, who's my helper? Well, God is the creator and authority and helper of all of creation. So yeah, like, yeah. But God also has called out Israel and looks over his his people and his nation and he seeks them out. But beyond that, God sees me. And God doesn't just care for me. He cares for petty stuff in my life. Keeps the sun off me in a hot day. Watches me as I come and go out of my house going on errands. Does it now, he'll continue to do it. Right? Like there's this movement from grand to small, from cosmic to incredibly specific and almost petty, right? So hold on to that idea. And then let's put it within a specific context within the book of Psalms. So Psalm 121 is part of a shorter collection of Psalms within the larger book of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. This is a a collection of songs that God's people would sing on their way to Jerusalem as part of the worship, heading into some of the Jewish feasts kind of required pilgrimage from wherever you lived to Jerusalem to participate at the temple. And this collection of psalms was gathered together in what's called the post-exile period. 
after Israel was destroyed and scattered and the God's people were scattered throughout the nations by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, these empires that were continually conquering that land. And God's people were scattered far away, but eventually God made a way for his people to come and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild a second temple. And they began to worship again. And during that season of Israel's history, some of these Psalms were collected together, the Psalms of Ascent. And the idea of the ascent here is that Jerusalem is a city on a hill, the final piece of highway that leads to Jerusalem from wherever direction you're coming from is uphill right? In fact, the Jewish people would always say, I'm going up to Jerusalem from regardless of what direction they're coming from to go to Jerusalem is to go up. It's on the top of a hill. And as they made their way in the final chunk of the walk, making up this, this King's Highway, this uphill ascent, they had these songs they would sing together that would prepare their hearts for the worship they were going to do in Jerusalem for Passover, the, the festival of, of their, you know, whatever, whichever festival they're heading to Jerusalem for. This was kind of their pre-church camp playlist to get their heart hyped to get to Jerusalem and worship, right? So here's what's important about that piece. It lets you imagine the context within which this psalm was sung. Put yourself in the space of a pilgrim. A pilgrim who, who identifies as one of God's people, as one of, one of the chosen, one of the 12 tribes, and yet God's people have been conquered and scattered. And wherever you live, for whatever reason now, you're able to make your way to Jerusalem for a feast. This might be the first time you've been to the temple in your life or in months or years. And as you're traveling with your family, with your friends, and you get to this final stretch, some people start to lead you guys through these songs. (coughs) Songs of worship, songs of praise. And you get to Psalm 121. As you're marching up this hill toward the city, you can already see the city walls in the distance. You can see the temple mount rising up above the city walls and the temple sitting on it. And you're singing and you say, look to the hills. Where, where does my help come from? I need help. And when you look to the hill right there, you see, you see the temple mount. You see the temple. My help comes from the Lord, the creator of all things. And then as you travel and you consider God's care for Israel, your history as a people, can see, you're getting to the place where you can see the walls of Jerusalem, you can see the guard towers, and you sing, he watches over Israel day and night, like a watchman in the watchtower. He doesn't sleep, he doesn't take a break, he cares for Israel. And then as you're walking along in these, these fields that surround the city, they're like where, where some of the main agricultural work is done to feed the city, and you see these lean-to shelters set up by the agricultural workers during the harvest time where they get in there to get out of the sun during their long days of harvest, and you go, see, that's, that's how God cares for me. He's a shade for me on a sunny day. He keeps me out of the elements in the night. He keeps his eye on me, right? And you can see how the imagery of this poem connect to what's going on. It's, it's a beautiful connection, right? It's a beautiful thing. But I think it still draws us back really importantly to the same question. How is that true? It's a beautiful thing to sing. It's a beautiful thing to consider. It's a beautiful thing to declare. But the very, the very opening of this psalm draws up this question. Because the speaker looks to the hills and says, where is my help? I, which implies he needs help. Right? There's obviously something going on that the speaker needs help. 
These are Jewish people who are living, living under God's covenant, and yet they see, they see Israel destroyed. They're traveling as a conquered people through conquered lands to go to a temple that pales in comparison to the one Solomon built to worship. And they're singing songs about God's present protection and the way he never rests. And how his eye is always on them. It just kind of sits funny. You get it. It's beautiful. But it still comes back to, how is that true? Right? Take it a step further with me and remember the covenantal context that we find Psalm 121. So remember, right, we're talking about an Old Testament text. This is before Christ, before his ministry. This is God's people as the nation of Israel. And God's people as the nation of Israel lived under what we call the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant. Remember, God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. It spoke to them, delivered them through the prophet Moses. They left Egypt, made their way into the wilderness, and made their way toward the promised land. And what the text tells us is that on Mount Sinai, God appeared supernaturally, revealed himself, and established a covenant relationship with Israel. You can read about this in Exodus, like the teens to the 20s, like it tells the story. God manifesting, showing himself, and making this covenant. And locked into the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is this idea of covenantal blessings and covenantal curses. You can read in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 where Moses is retelling the story of the covenant. When you get to 28 and 29, he gives this very specific way of how this relationship works. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be with you, I'll protect you, I'll care for you, I'll bless you. If you follow my covenant, if you follow my covenant, you'll receive all these blessings. And the blessings of Deuteronomy are vividly specific. They say things like, you'll have lots of kids. You won't have lots of sickness. Famine won't touch your land. Your nation will be blessed. You'll succeed in your military campaigns, right? Like all these things that are, that are very specific. If you, if you follow me, if you keep my covenant, if you do what I commanded you, I'll be your God, I'll be with you, and you'll see these things. If you don't follow my covenant, if you rebel and you break the covenant, then I will remove my blessing. And you will receive instead curses. And it gets really specific. You won't have enough food to eat. You will experience famine. You will be conquered. Things will be, there will be suffering. It will be painful, right? Here's what's important about that covenant that's easy for us to miss. It's just modern Western readers as we engage this, this piece of scripture. The ancient Jewish people understood this covenant to be a communal covenant that experienced communal blessings and communal curses. Here's what I mean by that. Ancient Israel was a collectivist society. They weren't overly individualistic the way we are in the modern Western world. And so when they saw this covenant, it wasn't a covenant between God and Jebediah. It was a covenant between God and Israel. Jebediah was a part of Israel. So he becomes a recipient of the blessings and he bears responsibility collectively with keeping the covenant. So it's a weird nuance to think about, but it's actually important. Because what it shows us is this. The blessings of the covenant were given by God to the nation of Israel. But that doesn't mean that each individual citizen of Israel was continually experiencing every aspect of the blessing. He says things like, I'll protect your military. Your military campaigns will be successful. So and you see that as you follow the story of Israel after Mount Sinai. They go in and God blesses them and they win victories. That doesn't mean none of their soldiers died, right? There were some individuals 
who didn't get to experience the fruit of the blessing, but the nation, the people experienced the fruit of the blessing. So bring it along a few hundred years later, if you read the history books of the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, what you see is that God's people continually rebelled and broke covenant. God made this agreement with them, this is who I am, this is how we'll relate, and they said, eh, I don't like this. And they just continually rebelled and ran away from covenant. And God warned over and over and just gave grace upon grace upon grace for generations saying, you made a covenant with me. I made a covenant with you. If you reject me, these will be the consequences. This is what happens when you run away from the blessing of God is these bad things happen. And "Eh, we're good, we're good, we're good. And eventually it comes to pass and the blessing of God is removed from the nation of Israel and the curses of Deuteronomy come upon them and the nation is destroyed. Even though... There were godly people in Israel at that time. You can read the book of Jeremiah and read about this godly man who loved Jesus, who loved God and was was calling his people to repentance and, and calling his people to faithfulness. And yet he experienced the collective removal of the blessing and the collective curse over Israel. And he saw Jerusalem destroyed and ransacked. He experienced that, right? It's this collective experience. So when you get all the way to the post-exile period, when you have God's people singing the Psalms of Ascent as they make their way to Jerusalem for worship, you're left in this really interesting place. Of anyone within like redemptive history, these are people that should know the problem with this song in this text. God did not protect Israel from Babylon. He sent Babylon, right? He said, this is the consequence. And that suffering was real. And so as they walk up that hill and they sing this song, Lord, you see me, you protect me, you keep keep me from getting sunburned. You watch me as I come and as I go. The first two sections, like, those are squarely in line with Jewish theology up to that point. God's the creator, he has the authority, he has the responsibility. Yeah, God made a covenant with Israel, like God watches over Israel, his eyes never close, he doesn't sleep, that's all good. But then, when the song transitions to, you watch over me, you protect me, that's actually a divergence from established Jewish theology. What is going on there? But I think this speaks, I think this speaks to the actual heart of, of God's people in this moment in history. God's people living in exile, God's people seeing Israel destroyed, God's people with enough clarity of hindsight to see how miserably they failed the covenant given at Sinai for generations. They cry out to God in their worship and their preparation to go to the temple to say, God, we need something different. We need help. We can't do this. I need you to protect me. I need you to watch over me. I need something new. God's people were longing for a new covenant. Something something that just worked better, (laughs) right? You can actually read about this in the prophets, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak about this. I'm going to read these two texts to you really quick. Jeremiah 31, there's a prophecy about this new covenant. It says this. 
Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors in the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I, their master, this is the Lord's declaration. Instead of, instead of this covenant, I will make with the house of Israel after those days a new covenant. I will put my teaching within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. This is the Lord's declaration for I will forgive their iniquity and will never again remember their sin. Ezekiel 36 has the same sentiment. The Lord says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. See, at this point in redemptive history, when Psalm 121 is written, God's people are longing for something new. They look around, they see the world around them, they see the circumstances and they go, we need protection. We need help. This world is full of trouble. This world is full of suffering. God, we need you. We need you. Crying out for a new covenant. For a covenant where God is the protector of the individual. Where God cares for each heart. Where God meets people in their individual suffering. Beloved, this new covenant is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what the New Testament declares to us, that God did something new. When when the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they open, they talk about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Mark, I think, like captures this perfectly. Like he goes out and starts teaching and he just says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Saying, look, God's doing something new. Something new. And you can be a part of it. I mean, this is the message that Jesus teaches. God is doing something new and you can be a part of it. It doesn't doesn't require this communal blessing, but rather you as an individual can come to the Lord with your sin and confession and repentance and you can receive the forgiveness of God for your sins and you can walk in new life. You can be forgiven. You as an individual, not you, Israel. You as a soul, as a person, made in God's image, you can come to him. You can find forgiveness. You can find life. So what Jesus does, this is the new covenant. The old covenant was not sufficient to draw God's people to salvation. It painted a picture. It cast a vision of what it could look like for God to be connected to his people, for sin to not have the final say on God's relationship to his creation. But it wasn't sufficient to get people into perfect eternal communion with God as they were built for So Christ comes on the scene and perfectly fulfills the covenant, lives a perfectly righteous life with no sin, does everything necessary to earn perfection and earn eternity, and then turns around and says, okay, I did it. You can have it. I did the work to bear this fruit. I gladly hand you this fruit. Take it. Take the eternal life, the eternal perfection, the eternal heaven that I earned and have it. I will take the sin, the death, the curse that you earned and I'll take it upon myself and we can just trade. You can have the heaven that I worked for. I'll take the wrath that you worked for. It's the gospel. That's the new covenant. 
It says, you're not able to do this. You're not capable. You need help. So I'll come and help. I'll come and I'll do it. I'll do the work on your behalf. Beloved, what a, what a protector. What a covenant. Covenant that is so personal, that is so intimate. I think our text really powerfully and beautifully points us to this longing for the new covenant. This longing for the need of the heart that Jesus fulfills. So, do this with me. All that context, the structure of the psalm, the movement from, from cosmic to personal, the, the idea of where it lands within Israel's redemptive history, the understanding of the God. Take all those pieces with me and let's come back to where we started. What the psalm plainly says and the question that it raises in many of our hearts. How is this text actually true? I get how God's people long for God to do something new and protect them as individuals. The real need in this crazy sinful world. I get how Jesus is the new covenant, how he came and made a way for us to be with God forever, like amen. But then what does it mean to say that God protects you from all evil? When evil obviously affects people, even Christians. I mean, guys, the text ends with this clear declaration of blessing. Look at verse 7. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going now and forever. This is beautiful. But suffering is obviously real and Christians are not immune. Quite the contrary. Jesus actually said we should expect to suffer because of him. Because of the reality of the sinful broken world, we should expect hardship and trial and pain and injustice. How does that work? I think the answer for us, I think the thing that kind of brings this together is in verse seven. I don't know what your, how your translations put this because it's, it's, called, it's said a little differently in different translations, but mine says that God will protect your life. If you translate this Hebrew word life, the literal translation of it means neck. God will protect your neck. But the way the word was used in Hebrew, you have to remember, right? Like different language, different culture. Like they had different word and imagery associations connected to their language than we do. So some of the like the idioms, figures of speech just don't directly translate, right? So this word neck was a synonym for the word breath. And it was, was the word picture used in Hebrew to describe set apart human life. In fact, it was a synonym, not just for neck, it's a synonym for what we, what we say soul. Spirit, when you read in the Old Testament, when it says things like your spirit, the spirit of God, you're reading the breath of God. Because that was the word image they used to talk about the spiritual realities. And it connects back to this idea that in the creation story, God breathed life into Adam and Eve, setting them apart from the rest of creation, putting his image, a spirit within them, something different than the rest of the animals in creation, that humanity has this spiritual reality within us. In Hebrew, the language describes that through the image of breath. And so the text here says, the Lord will protect your breath. Now, that can have a very literal physical sense, like your life could protect your neck, keep you breathing, those sorts of things. But it's not separate from the spiritual reality in the Hebrew mind. They're a little more holistic in the way they think of body, soul, and mind than maybe we do in our context. 
So I, I, I want us to take a minute and consider it this way. The text says, the Lord will protect your coming and going now and forevermore. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life, protect your breath, protect your soul. I think this is, in this text, just a prophetic looking forward to the actual work of Christ. The work of Christ to secure your soul for eternity. And here's, here's, here's how I, I think that connection makes sense for us. We live in a broken, sinful world. And suffering and pain and injustice is an obvious reality. It's an obvious reality. The scripture does not shy away from it. The scripture speaks really openly about the reality of suffering and how that affects the human heart. Go read Job, right? Like, the scripture talks really clearly, by the way, how God uses suffering and injustice and sin in this world to sanctify and grow us, to, to make us more like him. Not that that's his, like, desire for you, but that that's the reality of this world. And so God works within that to accomplish his goodwill and his good purposes. God doesn't waste the suffering that exists in this world, right? And so I think what you have in our text is a poem, something meant to be beautiful, something meant to capture your imagination and point you to a deeper truth, a deeper reality of the walk of faith. And I think the deeper reality that you're being pointed to here is this. The suffering of this world is not the defining feature of forever, <laughs> The suffering, the, the hurt, the injustice of here and now does not define eternity. The Lord is your protector. He guards over your life. Yes, he's here with you right now in the minutia. Yes, God notices when little things happen to you. His eyes are open. He doesn't sleep. He cares about things as small as sunburns. But the Lord is also cosmic. The Lord is also grand. The Lord also knows your eternity. And he has, through Christ, in Christ, he has secured your eternity. He has made a way for you from death to life. He has made a way for you to live in perfect eternity with him forever. Forever is such an easy word to say that makes no sense to your brain. If you think about it for two seconds, forever makes no sense. That's insane. The suffering you experience, listen, beloved, I am not downplaying the hurt you have received in this life. Please hear me when I say that. I get it. This world can be wretched. And I know many of you have experienced horrific things, things that ought not to have happened, things that have had deep and real and profound effects on your heart. And I am not downplaying that. Please hear me. But you also need to know that 15 trillion years from now, when you've been walking in perfect unity with Jesus, completed with no pain and no suffering and no evil, for trillions upon trillions of years of perfection and beauty and everything you were built for, you will have a different perspective on your suffering in this life. It will just hit different, right? Alvin Plantinga is this Christian philosopher who's brilliant, and you probably haven't heard of him because he just hangs out in academia and doesn't go on social media or any of those things. But he writes all sorts of lofty academic papers about Christian philosophy and apologetics and those sorts of things. And when presented with the problem of theodicy, how can the God of the Bible coexist along evil? He presents, he helps, he's really helped in the modern day codify this philosophical argument called 
called, what's called the free will defense. And it essentially goes like this. If a caretaker is, is given the task of caretaking someone, right, an object of affection, and that caretaker allows a certain experience of evil or suffering as a part of a larger program to bring about a net good, that caretaker has done nothing morally wrong. That's an insane way to say it. But think of it this way. If you have a mama who takes her six-month-old baby to the doctor and says, hey, what should we do? And the doctor's like, well, you need to get these shots, you need to do this with our eyeballs and do this and do that. And they go, okay. And so the doctor does all those things to the kid in the exam room. That's not fun for the kid. That six-month-old has no clue what's going on. They're in a cold room sitting on a table that's uncomfortable, getting poked and prodded and potentially getting needles shoved into their body, right? And so if you've had little kids, you know, what do they do in that doctor's office? They cry and they scream. They don't want to be there. That experience is terrible, right? That's real suffering for that child. <laughs> that's real pain. That's a real thing. And yet none of us would look at that mom and go, wow, you're a wretched mother. I can't believe you took your kid to the doctor. No. Because we understand, right, that the mother has in mind a larger system of net good for that child. And it involves an experience of immediate suffering and pain. I don't, des- I don't desire that. You're not, you're not sitting there going, I can't wait till my kid gets poked with a needle. <laughs> I mean, maybe at three in the morning, right, like you might have that thought. But that's not, you don't delight in that. You don't seek to cause that for your child. But you know... Well, I have a larger plan of good for my child and it involves this and it's necessary. And so we're just going to go through it. And in that moment, I'm not going to take away that pain. I'm not going to remove the needle. I'm not going to not stop the doctor from poking her nose or looking at her eyeball. Like I'm going to let it happen, but I'm going to be there. I'm going to hold her close. I'm going to hold the kid close and I'm going to whisper sweet mommy nothings to him, you know, and just be with the kid through that because you know, you have a bigger picture in mind, Right. I think there's a there's reality that that, you know, and it's philosophical defenses and you can pick them apart back and forth. And if you're in that world, you know how that stuff all goes back and forth. But I think Planiga tacks into something that is so important for us when we consider the reality of suffering in this world, the reality of the presence of evil. And it's simply this. God has a bigger perspective than you do. God has a bigger perspective than you do. And that is, hear me, that is not to downplay bad experiences you've had, church. Please do not hear me dismissing your suffering. It's real. I care for you. Christ cares for you. And if the scripture teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus cares about the petty stuff, much less the big stuff. He cares for the sparrows. He clothes the flowers of the field. You are much more precious than they. He numbers the hairs on your head. He cares for you. He cares if you get a sunburn right? It's not to downplay those things, but it is to tell you that we can expect that a good and holy and righteous God who has eternity in mind might allow suffering and evil to exist right now because he has better perspective than we do. And we might expect that if that's what this God was doing, this eternal, perfect, good, loving, all-powerful God was for whatever reason that we can't fully understand allowing evil and the curse to exist right now that rather than make those things go away, he might instead place himself with us in the midst of that suffering to comfort us and keep us and carry us along. And he might make promises like, 
I will keep you forever. This won't, this right now won't be forever for you. I have something better for you. You can endure this because I'm with you. And I'm strong for you. And I'm strong in your weakness. And beloved, that is exactly what your Lord tells you. So, bring that back to our text. And this is where we'll land. Chris, if you want to come back up. I want to ask you guys to consider something this morning. And it's this. If we got into this text and you had that question and you were sitting there going, this is beautiful, but how the heck is that true? That's beautiful. That's a good question. That's a good, that's a good thing to think about. And hopefully as we dug through this, like that helped, helped maybe you navigate some of those thoughts and those questions. But I just want to make sure that in this space, we haven't so overly explained this text that we miss out on the simple beauty of what God is saying to you today. Beloved, your God loves you. He sees you. He cares for you. He guards over you. He watches over you. He's with you in this world. He's with you in this suffering. And he will continue to be with you. Now and into forever. Now and into eternity. The Lord will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He's a safe guardian. He's a trustworthy companion. So let me do this. I'm going to reread the text. And then I'm going to land us with, with, with a couple thoughts for you to pray as we sing. Let me reread Psalm 121 to us. It says this. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day, the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from harm. He'll protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and your going now and forever. Beloved, this is the God of the universe and what he thinks of you. He loves you. He sees you. He cares for you. text I've come back to my entire faith journey. It's one that I'm not exaggerating when I say I pray this on almost a daily basis. Philippians 1.6, in the opening of his letter to the Philippian church, Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that is the text I need. God finish what he started. The God who called you is faithful. He will keep you. The God who sought you is faithful. He will not give up on you. The God who saves you is watchful and caring and loving. You will not pass by his sight. You will not slip through the cracks. He cares for you. He's with you. Now, into forever. For those who are in Christ, that, for, that forever is guaranteed. So I'm going to ask you guys to do this. I'm going to give us just a minute. And I want to encourage you guys. Take a few minutes and pray through this text. Grab your Bible. Leave it at your phone or your physical Bible. Look at this text again. Reread it. Look at those words. And consider the Lord God. Consider his power. Beloved, there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the Satan, 
curse, sin, injustice. Heck, you, you are not, you are simply not powerful enough to pull you away from the love of God. His ultimate good for you. He's the creator. He made all this and he has the authority and the power to watch over you. I'd encourage you to consider God's presence in your life. Beloved, God is with you. Right now, in this broken and sinful world, the reality of sin, the reality of the curse, the reality of our will as rebellious creatures means that this life does involve evil and suffering. But your God doesn't abandon it. He doesn't not see it. He doesn't ignore it. No, beloved, he steps into it with you. We're not alone. The Lord is with you. He endures the suffering with you. And he protects your very soul. And lastly, I'd encourage you to remember that that presence of the Lord is always there for you. The Lord does not sleep. You can always come to him. You can always come to him afresh. The gospel well of forgiveness and grace is always available to you. It does not matter what circumstances within which you find yourself. The love of God is freely available to you here and now. Don't miss it. Forget about it. Don't move past it. Beloved, God is for you. Who can possibly be against you? Take a few minutes. Pray. Consider these ideas. And I'm going to come back up and pray to close us and then we'll sing a song.